This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Sarah Stone, author of The True Sources of the Nile and Hungry Ghost Theater, as well as co-author of two books on the craft of fiction. She teaches creative writing at Warren Wilson MFA Program for Writers and Stanford Continuing Studies. She has also worked as a psychiatric aide in a locked facility, has written for Korean public television, reported on human rights in Africa, and looked after orphan chimpanzees at the Jane Goodall Institute. Her latest novel, Hungry Ghost Theater, tells the story of a loving and dysfunctional half-Jewish family of performers, scientists, and activists who also struggle with addictions, mental illness, and must face the proverbial and sometimes real ghosts of their past and present. The story is told in multiple points of view and forms a sort of collage-like view into the main character's struggles and triumphs. We began the interview with Sarah Stone talking about the title, Hungry Ghost Theater. It's not one that came to me easily. I spent a long time getting there. There was a while once I realized that these weren't just a bunch of separate pieces, but an actual book, when I was thinking of them as the unforgivable stories, because I'm dipping into material that felt for a long time as if I had no right to touch it, though I started to get permission from people in the family whose stories I'm really transforming in some way or have turned into fiction. But that was really not the whole of it. It was more than that. And then there's this idea that the family in the book, these three generations of artists and scientists and performers and addicts are like hungry ghosts. They, one of the characters explicitly says this at some point, that they're like the hungry ghosts from a Tibetan hell where they have an enormous appetite, an enormous belly, and a tiny little throat, and they can never take in enough. So I was calling it Hungry Ghosts. But there was something else because it wasn't just painful. There's a way in which with all the time with this family, it was also funny or performative. So finally, really just before I sent it out, I got to Hungry Ghost Theater, and that sense both of the mythological And also that everything that happens is done with an eye to its effect on the audience. You mentioned that you started off with this maybe as various pieces that you didn't know was going to be a novel. I'm I'm curious about that. I wrote this in a way as a method of cheating on another book that I was writing. I had written 28 drafts of it. I couldn't get it right. I was really attached to the characters and the story, but there was something about it that was didactic or earnest or off base. So I would sneak away and I would start to write one of these pieces and another. And over time, I understood they were connected. And then as I kept going and the family grew, I had this sense that they were going through this series of hells. And that actually sent me back to Dante. And I reread Inferno, a book I completely love because it's very funny, it's very dark, and it's very funny, and it's very wise about people, and it's very opinionated and sometimes annoying. The character of Dante is annoying, and you're trying to look past him to the poet to see how much is he aware of that. And so then it explicitly began to connect for me, and I 
made these nine pieces and kept moving them around until I felt like I was having a a fight with Dante, but a respectful, loving fight. So it sounds like in some way Dante's work was either the first part of a conversation you were having or a model that you were having. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the content or the structure or what it was there that you were trying to respond to with this novel. I'm so interested in the kind of dream where you feel as if you've woken and then you're in another place. And at some point you realize that's another dream and you keep trying to wake up this family of People who are addicted, it's not just there's some alcohol and some drugs, but there's also these other kinds of addictions to the ways their relationships function with each other, to theater itself, to their ideas about the world, to a certain stance towards politics. And I think anytime you're dealing with addiction and obsession, there's denial, there's deception, there's self-deception, there are these moments of awareness, and sometimes you can act on those moments of awareness, and sometimes you have them kind of helplessly or aware, but you can't do anything. And all of that is somewhat dreamlike. And the progression through hell in Dante has that quality almost of waking to a new hell as he descends, and then waking again and waking again, because he sees these qualities in himself. He's being led through by Virgil as a warning. Beatrice has sent him down. You are going to be in really big trouble if you don't wake up to your own flaws. So that part, I felt a kinship with it. And then there's this other part, which has to do with that old understanding of sin. And so much of what we now see as people's biochemistry or the ways that the ways that our minds trick us was absolutely sin. But that led me into wrestling with, okay, what about the element of choice? You know, you might have one kind of biochemistry and act on it in one way or not act on it in another. So that was interesting to me. It's not a question, I have to say, spoiler alert, that the book solves. Let's get into the more specifics of of your novel can you talk a little bit about how you embodied some of these ideas? And mainly that is, who did you center this story around, especially for people who haven't read it? Who are the main characters and, and their journey? There are three generations, and there's a way in which the middle generation is the central generation, late 30s, early 40s. Robert, who's a very domineering director, Eva, who's his uh, the middle sister, who becomes a neuroscientist, an affective neuroscientist who's interested in finding the roots of empathy, and Julia, the youngest. And then there are Eva's three daughters, Katya, who's a real firebrand, Jenny, who's the peacemaker, a cancer survivor. They call her Saint Jenny, and everyone turns to her in trouble, and Ariel, who's really got the central addiction problem in the book. And there's a kind of tracery of various people's stories. Julia is under Robert's domination and trying to free herself. And the whole family is in some way trying to figure out how to look after Ariel. So moving through all these nine pieces, which are told in different voices and modes 
and sometimes are directly about the family members and sometimes about people whose lives are heavily impacted by theirs. There's a sense of an undercurrent rather than a more traditional arc, though I think it starts in one place and ends in another. You mentioned addiction a few times. What was your main interest in writing about addiction? Because I come from a family where that's a real issue, I think there's always something. I'm really fundamentally a fiction writer, so I'm not someone who writes thinly disguised autobiography and can't really write memoir or personal essays, though I love to read them. So it's very transformed, but there's this sense when some of the people who you love are in the grip of life-threatening addictions, it's just like having acid poured on your heart all the time. And if you're a writer, I think you're naturally drawn back to those places that are the, the great wounds. So you mentioned this family, and Eva is the mother of these three children, and so she has sort of a life separate from her her siblings, Robert and Julia. Robert and Julia are in a theater company that's sort of experimental or avant-garde. And that was a big part of the book, their activities in the theater, the kinds of things that the theater did. And I'm wondering if you could talk about creating this theater and maybe talk about some of the pieces that you wrote about that you had to create that they did, some of their plays. Well, this was, to me, one of the joys of the book. I'm mad for theater. When I'm sitting in a theater, I think, well, why ever do anything else, which is a form of tiny breakdown in itself, because there are a lot of other great things you could do in life. So I had the chance, Erica Changshak and Anne Bleetenthal, two amazing experimental performers, dancers, let me sit in, in Erica's case, on auditions and in Anne's case, on rehearsals. So I could watch some of that process of people inventing and reinventing theater. And I wanted a kind of theater that has to take on the world because, in a way, it's a book about whether you even can make political art. What is the role of art? when we're living in really difficult times. At this moment, we're living in times where it feels like every day has been set on fire anew. So what are you going to do as an artist, not just as a citizen, because I'm not thinking that art can replace what we have to do as people in the world, but as an artist, how do you take that on and what use is it and how does it mingle with other kinds of material, whether it's dreams or mythology or some of the other aspects of performance and making that drive these characters. You actually wrote a play. It is Between the Two Sisters, and it's actually a really hard moment. And it's it was an interesting choice to write the play because I think it was a, a real effective device in kind of writing about tragedy and in the ways we can't maybe look directly at it and talk about it both metaphorically or maybe in this alternate form. And I'm wondering if you could talk about your choice to write about a tragedy in the play and then the experience of writing a play because that is different than novel. There's these two plays. There's the very short play, 
which takes place in an assisted living home between the oldest characters in the play, Robert and Eva and Julia's parents, and is in a certain way comic, as well as having a little bit of sadness. And then there's this other play which takes place in a whole series of hells. And I feel like having the plays gave me a kind of wild freedom that I don't always feel in a novel because I wanted to feel emotionally truthful. And I feel like there's a line where you can have something that's emotionally truthful and wildly inventive, but it's hard. The more inventive it gets, sometimes the further it gets from feeling like, yes, this is my life and I can identify with the losses these people are having. And yet in the theater, you can do almost anything. There's a place for spectacle and the fantastic, but you are somehow looking directly at the human beings on stage and you never forget their humanity and their vulnerability and their mortality. So I want to talk a little bit more about this family. It's multi-generations. In addition to addiction, they have some biochemistry issues with maybe depression or, or madness. You mentioned how some of this might straddle your own family, finding the balance between, you know, taking things from your life versus copying things from your life. I really like that distinction. Yes, there's quite a bit of mental illness in my family. Um, We are somewhere on a line of eccentric to flamboyantly mentally ill. There's some real illness, but when it's the people you love, it it isn't as strange. I worked as a psychiatric aide in a locked facility for a while when I was young. And I really came to see that this is certain people and they have their quirks and the quirks are larger and more colorful and sometimes more dangerous than people's quirks. But it, when we are outside the institutions, but it really is, feels like part of who they are or interruptions in who they are. And you're not seeing them as whatever that illness is, but also seeing the delight in them. The way that you told the story was from different points of view. Sometimes you came back to the same points of view, but it was very expansive that way. It made it feel bigger, which means sort of as the reader, you feel included in much more information. You know, there's some books you can read that are maybe more claustrophobic in a positive way that you're just involved in it. And this was like we had a view to so many elements of the family. And I just wonder if you can talk about the process of, of writing or or maybe your choices to add so many points of view and the structure of it in these nine parts, which is similar to Dante. I think it's a really central question. I think if I'm considering what are the central projects of my work, One of it has to do with making sure that everybody and everything on the outskirts is included. I love reading those claustrophobic books sometimes, but I really also love the story of the group. And that's what I want to write so that you don't feel this person's story is the central one that matters because nobody thinks of themselves as a minor character and nobody really is a minor character. And it doesn't seem to me that for most of us, we live in a way that's really very alone. I've read that we can only have about 100 connections that feel 
central and we can have hold of it any moment, but that's a lot of people. And most novels don't come close. In fact, this novel doesn't come close to that sense of a hundred important people. And maybe if you think about who else you know, there might be 300, 500 people sort of tangentially and interestingly in our lives at any given moment. So trying to give some of that sense of plurality and the different ways of seeing the world and the different ways of seeing some of the same events or inhabiting some of the same places, I find that really exciting and interesting. It's one of the main things I'm in love with about writing is I'm not stuck in my own small life for my own self, but I can imagine my way into all of these different people. And given how long it takes me to write a novel, I need to put a lot of them in the same novel and not wait for the next novel. Your character, Eva, is a neuroscientist, and she's looking for sort of the chemical spot or that place in your brain to empathy. And I thought that was interesting on many levels because <laughs> there's many people who maybe don't have it and need it at this time. But also, I think writing, we read sometimes to develop empathy or writing is an act of empathy. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about putting this aspect onto her character and then your feelings about empathy and literature and writing. I would love to think that as we read, we become more empathic and we become better human beings. And in some cases, I think that's true. It feels to me like the central thing we need if we're going to move forward. I come out of a family where people were, my mother was an artist and did very wild collage art. I think I've inherited that sensibility from her. My father was a psychologist and activist they had very different views of the world. And although he wasn't a neuroscientist, he was interested. He said he became a psychologist because he wanted to figure out what's wrong with people. <laughs> um, and he was a research and teaching psychologist. So there's a pull in some sense between those when I'm writing. And I know that a lot of artists are also activists. I am myself. But there's something a little bit polarized about wanting to make something beautiful and capture something in the world and then wanting to be of practical use to people and to understand how they work and to really have a scientific level of inquiry. So I'm interested in how those things play against each other, whether when they're in opposition and when they're in connection. You know, we've been talking about ghosts and the plays you wrote were deeply rooted in mythology. And I'm wondering about the role of mystery in fiction as a writer or, or maybe as a reader. I love that. I love that sense of embodying the unknowable. So it's not trying to explain or catch hold of something I'm not as happy usually if a book tries to explain at the end what things mean and ties it up, although that can sometimes be its own pleasure. But I think it's more interesting if what happens is you move deeper and deeper into what you don't know and let it resonate. So when you started this book, you had these pieces and you had Dante and questions you were trying to respond to. And we talked about so many things like mental health, addiction, 
But I'm wondering if there were any questions that were nagging at you that you really wanted to get on the page when you started, things that you wanted to explore either in your subject matter or as a writer. I think I'm just persistently interested in people trying to be good, which is not an easy thing to make fiction out of. And not everyone in here is really trying to be good, but they tend to think that they are. You know, Robert can be a bit villainous sometimes, but he always thinks that he's doing it for somebody else's good. He almost never says to himself, I am now setting out to be cruel to my sister. And he can also be charming or interesting or engaging. So I guess that I'm interested in the question of really, you know, my father's question as a psychologist, what's wrong with people? I would say, what is it that sometimes makes us so cruel to each other? And then on on the other hand, I love it when we rise to the occasion. Anything where, anytime I'm reading a book where somebody's sacrificing themselves or rising to the occasion, I usually will just find myself weeping. I love that. I, I love it when we make sacrifices and rise to the occasion. So there's those two counterbalancing elements. Is there something that you want to have readers walk away with? I know that's a big question. Actually, it's great. I mean, it's something that I've really been turning over in my mind. And I think when I started some of these stories, some of them really had an agenda. I, the characters have agendas. And I wanted, I had some of the same agendas, but I just backed off on that. And one of the things about having so many different people with so many different stances is not allowing myself to vote for one person's set of ideas over another particularly. And instead, it's kind of a theatrical experience. I want people to move into the caves of this book and to live in it with the characters and to be interested and to sometimes find it funny and to sometimes be possibly even annoyed or enraged and to sometimes be puzzled in interesting ways that make them think about their own lives. So when they come out the other side, it's a sort of experiential theater piece. And then you would go on thinking about it. I think that's what I would really like. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So one of the writers who I absolutely adore is Ruth Ozeki. And I'm going to read from a tale for the time being, which has a couple of different voices, very different. There's a schoolgirl in Japan now, and then there's a writer who's called Ruth Ozeki and who's discovers Now's diary washed up on the shore and is reading it and trying to figure out what happened to her. So I have this little passage in which now is writing in her diary and to an unknown reader who will be Ruth about some of the experiences she's having being bullied in school. And this is thinking about how she copes with it. My strategy was basically just to ignore them or play dead or pretend I didn't exist. I thought that maybe if I just pretended hard enough, it would actually come true and I would either die or disappear. Or at least it would come true enough for my classmates to believe it and stop tormenting me, but they didn't. They didn't stop until they chased me home to our apartment and I ran up the stairs and locked the door behind me 
panting and bleeding from loss of little places like under my arms or between my legs where the cuts wouldn't show. Mom was almost never at home at the time. She was into her jellyfish phase and she used to spend all day at the invertebrate tank in the city aquarium where she would sit clutching her old Gucci handbag watching Kurage and there's a little footnote because this book sometimes has footnotes which is Kurage jellyfish literally water plus mother watching Kurage through the glass. I know this because she took me there once. It was the only thing that relaxed her. She had read somewhere that watching Kurage was beneficial to your health because it reduces stress levels. Only the problem was that a lot of other housewives had read the same article. So it was always crowded in front of the tank and the aquarium had to set out folding chairs and you had to get there really early in order to get a good spot, all of which was very stressful. Now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure she was having a nervous breakdown at the time but I remember how pale and beautiful she looked with her delicate profile against the watery blue tank and her bloodshot eyes following the drift of the pink and yellow jellyfish as they floated by like pulsing pastel-colored moons, trailing their long tentacles behind them. Can you tell me more about why you chose this? I love this because it brings together so many kinds of tones and states of being. There's the horror of the other kids torturing her. There's that sense of loss of her mother not being there. There's the humor of the way in which she talks about her mother. It's not self-pitying. She's the victim of the other girls, but she's a resourceful kid. And then it ends with this gorgeous image. So it leaves us with beauty. And I think one of the things that Ozeki is extraordinary at is writing about things that can be quite difficult but the ways that she uses beauty, the unexpected turns of emotion, and the humor make it really possible to read her books with great pleasure. Can you read something you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something that you like? Sure. I'm going to read a little piece. We were talking about Katya, the firebrand daughter, um, who's a conflicted vegetarian when the story opens. And this is right after she has, in fact, eaten an entire chicken. She spends most of the next day at work thinking of the chicken, torn between squeamishness and a new surge of desire. At home, she eats the rest, then, erasing the evidence, washes and washes the pan, the sink, the table, the counters. The chicken smell seems to be in the carpet, the table and chairs, though she's taken out the garbage, left the windows open. She gets out rubber gloves and cleaners and scrubs it all down again. As she crawls into bed, she almost sees something moving out of the corner of her eye, a shadowy chicken-shaped flicker. When she turns toward it, it's nothing, a trick of the eyes, and she turns off the bedside lamp. In the morning, she leaves yet another note for evening Katya in the middle of the floor. Laundry, bills, find real job, no press box, don't go to the bar her tattoos covered by a turtleneck and her hair brushed into tidy blue and pink squirrels. She answers the phone, updates charts, greets the clients. She can't believe she ate a chicken. People do it all the time, no big deal. Not the same people who've been sent to jail for lying down in front of bulldozers or throwing paint on fur. Just because you're the same person doesn't mean you're the same self. A tiger lives inside and it needed some meat. Oh, please. This was yet another voice, annoyed, smoking on the iron balcony, black raccoon eyes and an old black trench coat. There is no tiger inside you. The worst kind of lie is a lie you tell yourself. That is so not true. That is such a piece of rhetorical bullshit. You're a piece of rhetorical bullshit. 
Katya wonders if everyone has these fights in their head or if she's losing it. And when I was working on that, it just took me a long time to try to encompass all the different states and cells that Katya has. And then I made them into an actual fight that she has with herself where she's acting out some of her conflict. So there's what happens in the story in terms of what she does and what the effects are, but there's also her mind wrestling with itself. And I felt that I'd, I'd, I'd gotten hold of a little piece of something that I wanted when I did that. Where do you write? I write at my desk, which has computer and apparently infinite piles of paper and all kinds of little meaningful objects that are supposed to make it all work better. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? The way I get away from writing is often a busman's holiday in that it's teaching. There could be moments when I'm doing my teaching in a really extensive fashion that I actually could have held out a little more time for my own writing, but it's so fun and interesting to go in and see what other people have been doing and to think about what it could become and its possibilities that I escape to that. Although when I need to just shut my mind down, I go to the ocean. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My spouse, Ron, who I met in workshops. So we began critiquing each other and have come to know each other's work better than anybody else would know it. And then I have this beautiful writing group and also my sisters, because what they're really good at is the human piece. They look at it and they see what makes sense to them or what doesn't or when they think no one would ever act that way. And so they become a part of it. How have you dealt with rejection? I used to be really bad at rejection, but fortunately I've had lots and lots of it and I had to get better at it. Um, I would sulk. I would get writer's block. I would feel sorry for myself. I would you know, go and find other writers who were fabulous and look at the final version of their extraordinary books and compare it to my crappy drafts and say, no wonder you're being rejected. And then finally, I was just tired of that. I sat down and I had a piece of paper and I drew a line down the middle and I wrote what I was trying to write on one side. And then I wrote all the things I was saying to myself, these terrible, terrible things. And I thought I would divorce in 30 seconds anybody who said one of these things to me and I say them to myself every morning when I write and I just I'm I decided I was not going to do it anymore and somehow I stopped and I instead started thinking of it more like dating you know you've already decided who you don't want to date you've decided who you won't send your work to you've already pre-rejected a bunch of people and now it's their turn to decide if they want to date you and you really only need a few and they make a kind of home for you WTAW Press feels like home to me, and it's worth waiting for. And what is your favorite word? Hineni, which is Hebrew and means here I am. I find it useful to have a touchstone because, as you can probably guess from reading the book, my mind goes to lots of different places and can be super hyperactive. So to have something that pulls me back to the present and indicates a kind of openness and willingness to be there, no matter what's going on, is very helpful. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Sarah Stone, author of the novel Hungry Ghost Theater. 
You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.